You've survived 25 degree temperatures and daylight savings. You have jet lag, but um, you're here at the nine o'clock service, so you have arrived. This is the better of the two sermons, I will say. Um, um, If you couldn't tell uh, by our reading of the Nicene Creed and by uh, Paul's song choices, we are looking at uh, the Trinity uh, this morning and for the next uh, two following weeks. And um, this is a difficult subject, the Trinity, uh, and I will just point out if you've been here for any length of time, you know that this teaching on doctrines is not really my, where we uh, are, reside perpetually. In fact, I don't know why I did doctrines of grace and now we're doing the Trinity. I think that probably could have thought, been thought through a bit more, but um, this is an important doctrine. Uh, it, it teaches us so much. It, it gives us everything from our worldview. It teaches us about marriage. It, it teaches us about uh, even things like music and worship. And, and, and it's so all-encompassing. Um, and, and so I've, I've enlisted some help. Uh, and since it is March and St. Patrick's Day uh, arrives soon... Um, I've asked that St. Patrick and a couple of his friends would um, help us with uh, thinking about this foundational doctrine. And so uh, I will turn it over to St. Patrick and his two friends. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, Okay, Uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. (laughs) Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism, a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. 
And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats to celebrate our conversion. I think we need to turn to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> Father, this can be overwhelming, this doctrine. And yet this is who you are. Three in one, one in three. Diversity in unity and unity in diversity. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to see clearly that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would come and be in this place and that he would be ministering to us of the work of Christ and the work of you, the Father, so that, Father, we can grow to love you more and that we can see one another as image bearers of you and love one another with greater intensity. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder if someone were to ask you to explain the Trinity, uh, you too would struggle as our friend St. Patrick has. And, and, and thus, I, I think for Christians... We often think of Trinity as this confusing doctrine. We do not fully understand it, and we feel like we cannot uh, uh, explain it well enough, and so we leave it alone. And we pray desperately that uh, someone who's investigating the Christian faith doesn't ask us to explain it. But why the stigma? Is the Trinity something that we are uh, better off leaving alone? Chalking it up entirely to the mystery of God. It's not mentioned in Scripture in terms of the word Trinity being used, and we do not find a, a comprehensive definition of it from any one verse in Scripture. And I think we struggle with it because the idea of one plus one plus one equals one sounds illogical and problematic. How can God be one? Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet also three. Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the, the oneness of God set Yahweh apart from the polytheism of the day. The belief that there were many gods, a god for rain, a god of the seas, a god for harvest time. And these gods were tribal. They were regional gods. The gods of the people of a particular land and, 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 and they reigned supreme over that land and over that people group. 
in their minds. Unless they were defeated by uh, an enemy and then their gods were proved to be inferior to the other region, the other territory's gods because they were conquerors. And we see this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius recognizing Yahweh as God uh, to some degree or with the men in the boat with Jonah when he tells them that he is running away from his God or with Elijah Uh, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But Israel's faith said that Yahweh was the one supreme God over the whole of creation and that all other gods were proven to be false. He was one. He was a single source of grace, the single author of creation and the single object of of worship. And the doctrine of the Trinity is not a retreat from this Old Testament teaching. In fact, the unity of God is the bedrock of our confession. But what about the Son and the Spirit? What what are their roles? We'll be looking at those of course in the in the preceding weeks. But how are we to think of the Trinity? We want to get this right because it is important. In fact, uh, as was cited in the video, the Athanasian Creed, which was written in the 5th or 6th century, the creed begins, whoever desires to be saved above all should hold to the Catholic faith, meaning the Orthodox faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Does that sound extreme, this idea that we must believe in the Trinity or we perish eternally? How could that be? It is because holding to a Trinitarian view of God is the only right view of God. If someone were to come up to you, I mean, just think of this as an example. If someone were to come up to you and say, well, I believe in in Jesus only. I don't believe in the Father and the Spirit. You would recognize that person as not being a Christian. That's a false view. The bedrock of our faith is God himself. And therefore, I must know my God as he presents himself through his word, which is how he has revealed himself. The God who created the world. The God who reveals himself to us. The God who brings salvation to his people. That God is the triune God, and I must believe in him. Otherwise, I worship a false God. But how is God revealed as Trinity? How is God revealed as triune? Well, I think we have to start with God before creation. Because it is this point that we must ask, what was God doing before creation? This is a question that maybe some of your children have asked you at some point, And you rattled around with trying to come up with an answer. Because, listen, if God is alone by himself... Before creation, then he creates creation out of, out of a desire for companionship 
or out of a need in some capacity. That then makes God dependent on creation, on us. It, it, it makes God a needy God. But we know that this is not the case. We know Jesus is called the Son of God. And therefore, that implies that he has a father. And we know that time and time again, God is referred to as a father. In Exodus chapter 4, he refers to Israel as his firstborn son. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, God carries his people as a father carries a son. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, he disciplines them as a father disciplines his son. Isaiah prays in Isaiah 63, you are our father. And then in the following chapter, you, O Lord, are our father. Then again, Jesus refers to God as father. He directs his prayers to our father. He tells his disciples that he will return to my father and your father, to my God and your God in John chapter 20. Peter and Paul refer to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 15 and in 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews is filled with fatherhood language. And scripture is showing us that this is who God has revealed himself to be. He's not first and foremost creator or even ruler. He is father Everything he does is as a father. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. He disciplines his children as a father. And do you see what this does? It gives the believer a new appreciation for the work of God. Our God rules the creation, his creation, as a kind and a loving father. But let me take this a step further as we make our point about the, the fatherhood of God before creation. As a father, God is life-giving. And God was life-giving before he created anything. From eternity, he has been life-giving. And we see this in John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Where John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And here John is referring to the Father because in verse 9 he says, This is how he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son. The God who is love is the Father who sends the Son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in his Son. It is part of who he is. He, he could not not love for if he did not, then he would cease to be a father. He would not be a father. Now think about this. God could not be love if there was no one to 
love. He could not be a father without a child. He is not loving if he only loves himself. You don't see someone who only loves themselves and describe that person as a loving person, do you? That's a selfish person. No, it is when that love is set on another that you describe them as a loving person. But Father, says Jesus the Son in John chapter 17, verse 24, you loved me before the creation of the world. The eternal Son, who according to Colossians chapter 1, is before all things, the one through whom all things were created, the one Hebrews 1 calls Lord and God, who laid the foundations of the earth. It is he who is loved by the Father before the creation of the world. The Father, then, is the Father of the eternal Son. And he finds his very identity, his fatherhood, in giving out his, of his life and being to the Son. This is why the Son is the eternal Son. There was never a time when he did not exist. He he is not a creation of the Father. He is co-eternal with the Father. Otherwise, you end up with the heresies that we saw in the video. Partialism, modalism, Arianism, adoptionism, the idea that God adopted the Son, that he was just a man, and then he set this on Christ. Those take away from the eternal existence of Christ and the sufficiency of his personhood and therefore make his atoning sacrifice, something we covered a few weeks ago, that makes his atoning sacrifice incomplete, insufficient. If he is a created being, then the sacrifice does not save us because then he is not God. And, and, and that's what we need. And next week we will look at uh, that Christ is fully man and, and fully God and how that plays out in our salvation. But for today, we see that the Son is co-eternal with the Father. Because if he is not, then there was a time when the Father was not yet a Father. And if that is the case, then there was a time when God was not loving. Since all by himself, he would have had no one to love. Now we've covered the love of the Father for the Son, John 3.35. Again, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. But what about the love of the Son for the Father? Jesus says in John 14... The world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly as he commanded me. So it is not just that the Father loves the Son, but the Son also loves the Father. And so much so that it is his will, it is his food, his very bread to do the will of the Father, John 4. And yet while the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father... There's a definite um, form to the relationship. And what do I mean by that? Overall, uh, 
The father is the lover, and the son is the beloved. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Bible over and over again talks about the love of the father for the son. And while the son clearly loves the father, there's not as many verses that say as much. And that means that the father's, in the father's love, he directs and he sends the son. The son does not direct and send the father. That, as it turns out, is hugely significant. As Paul takes note in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, the form of the father-son relationship, the headship, starts a flow of love. As the father is the lover and the head of the son, so the son is the lover and the head of the church. And as the father has loved me, so have I loved you, says the son in John 15 verse 9. And therein lies the very goodness of the gospel. As the Father is the lover of the Son, the Beloved, so Christ becomes the lover of the church, the Beloved. That means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. It is not love that is waiting on a response for when the church loves him. His love comes first. And we love because he loved first, 1 John 4, 19. Where else do we see this? Where else do we see this pattern? We see it in marriages. Husbands being the heads of their wives, loving them as Christ the head loves his bride, the church. He is the lover. She is the beloved. And like the church then, wives are not left to earn the love of their husbands. They can enjoy it as something that is lavished on them freely, without condition, and to the maximum. Men, if you are making your wives earn your love, then you have broken the chain of this fountain. Do you see why discipleship in the church is so important? Men and women come out of brokenness. They're seeking new life. They're seeking new purpose. And they come and they find it in Christ and in his body, the church. And we need to train people up in this. Because the world is happy to give a very different narrative of what marriage is supposed to look like. Of what headship looks like. Of what relationship between man and women looks like. Young people who have grown up in the church but still don't know what a biblical marriage looks like. One of the greatest ministries I have seen in the church was to young couples who didn't have a clue what a Christian marriage was supposed to look like. But several families opened their doors for these couples and allowed them to come into their home 
and showed them how they operated and they were being discipled along the way and showing the the consistency of scripture and the truth that was being lived out not perfectly but under grace for eternity the father so loves the son that he stirs up the son's eternal love Christ so loves the church that he stirs up our love in response. The husband so loves his wife that he stirs up her love to love him back. And the spirit is involved in all of these relationships serving to energize the the love between the father and the son, between Christ and his church, between believing husband and wife. You see the picture here. It's like a fountain that gets switched on. And the love flows from the Father to the Son to the church. And imagine what this does for relationships in the church. Instead of looking to our own interests, because of this great love that has flowed down to us and through us, we can look after the interests of others. Husbands, wives, neighbors, strangers. It is a contagious love that spreads because it emanates from the eternal Father. And this explains creation for us as well. For if the Father has always loved another in the Son by the Spirit, then it makes sense that in the overflow of his love for the Son, he would create so that others might enjoy the love between the Father and the Son, and that we should be created in the image of God and destined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's just a continuation of the the overflowing movement of love. The God who loves He loves to have an an outgoing image of himself in his son. And he loves to have more images of his love who are themselves outgoing, shining forth just as a, a lamp shines forth light. It is its nature and its essence. All this to say that the very nature of the triune God is at odds with the nature of other gods. You see, Satan himself is the definitive, needy, solitary God. He sets his love on no one. He only seeks his own glory. He shares it with no one. And he is at complete odds with the loving, gracious, overflowing, self-giving God. The same can be said of the idols that we have created in our hearts. They are empty, they are hungry, they are grasping, they are envious, while God is generous and radiant and self-giving. And yet we give our time and our attention to those things over God. Now I understand that fatherhood of God is a difficult subject for some, Not because of God, but because you have had a hard earthly father in one way or another. The 20th century philosopher Michel Foucault had the same issue. 
The majority of his life's work was about the evils of authority. And it all seems to stem from an authority figure in his life, his father. His father was desperate not to raise up a a weak boy. And so Foucault's father would attempt to toughen him up. And being a surgeon, Foucault's father would bring him to witness gruesome amputations. As one author put it, the image certainly has all the ingredients of a recurrent nightmare. The sadistic father, the impotent child, the knife slicing into flesh, the body cut to the bone, the demand to acknowledge the sovereign power of the patriarch and the inexpressible humiliation of the son having his manliness put to the test. You see, for Foucault, the image of the father is a dark one. Instead of love and care and blessing, he had violence and control and humiliation. But the problem here is that God the Father is not a model of the earthly father. No, it's the opposite of that. The eternal father is the supreme model of what a father should be for his children. And some earthly fathers are better representations of this than others, while there are still others who are actually models of Satan. My prayer is that whether you have had a good earthly father or a bad earthly father, you would hear what we said this morning and rejoice over the goodness of the Father who art in heaven. The Father who set his love on his beloved, his eternal Son, who was in constant unity and communion with him up until one point in history. That one moment when the lover had to turn his back on the beloved son as he hung cursed on a tree. And as terrible as that moment was, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? Because it opened the door for you and I, corrupt in our sin nature, desperate for an atoning sacrifice sufficient for our salvation. And in a moment, we will celebrate that one point in history together with fellow image bearers of God fellow participants of the love relationship between the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit. The fountain that flowed from the Father to the Son, to the church, that we would see one another and that we would recognize one another as co-heirs with Christ, people who have been loved first so that we too may love. Let's pray. Father, this is powerful imagery of father and son, and it's being energized by your Holy Spirit, and I'm sure all of us can recall emotions and feelings of our own earthly fathers as we think about this. And as we take part in this communion together, 
We're remembering what took place as Christ instituted at the Last Supper, the breaking of the body and the pouring out of the blood. That this was a plan that the Father and Son had come up with together. That it would draw us into communion and fellowship with Him. That those that put their trust and their faith in the Son would rejoice at this work of the Father and this laying down of His own life of the Son. For it is a beautiful relationship and it is because of the Trinity that we are able to sit here and listen and understand and believe and participate and proclaim this good news. So Father, rather than us finding this doctrine of Trinity confusing, would it stir us up, stir up our hearts as we read about and, and learn of and participate in this love between the Father and the Son? which has included us as we get stirred up into that love. For Father, give us these things, this clarity, as we go forth this week. For we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.